Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency, good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Pastor Brandon. Thank you, Terry. Oh. Thank you for not running out, women. I appreciate that. I was, I was anticipating that door being flocked with people. Um, this is this is right. We're we're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, Woo! Thanks for. I know it's heavy, right? Sometimes, man. The Bible is inconvenient. In case you wondered. It's inconvenient, but there's, there's good news coming, I promise. Um, I think it was Mark Twain who said, all generalization, generalizations are false, including this one. Um, he's a self-contradictory guy, if ever there was one. And it's true that generalizations in general are usually wrong. But I've heard someone else say, generalizations are always wrong and always helpful. <laughs> because... As many exceptions as there are to every generalization we make, they also tend to be true on some level in general, hence generalization. Uh, We have to make generalizations in order to function in our world. And so we walk through the world understanding that we have to generalize, and yet there will be many, 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 many exceptions to every generalization. And sometimes you have to approach the Bible the same way. Um, And that's kind of what Paul is addressing here, is uh, men and women within the church and how we're supposed to act. Now, we have this problem between men and women. Way back in Genesis, chapter 3, verse 16, God is pronouncing a curse upon humanity because of the sins of Adam and Eve. The sin of not trusting God and trying to grasp God's place by being deceived by the serpent and partaking of the fruit of the tree that God had told them not to partake from. So they disobeyed God, distrusted God, and tried to grasp authority and power from God. And so God comes down and pronounces a curse. He pronounces a curse on the serpent that deceived the humans, pronounces a curse on Eve, and pronounces a curse on Adam. And in the curse to Eve, God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the serpent. So Humanity and the serpent will hate one another, 
But also, I'm going to make your desire to be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. And some translations say, lord it over you. He will dominate you. And so from the beginning, from that moment forward, we've lived in a male-dominated world. From that moment forward, we lived in a world where men take charge, men take power. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say in some corners of the church and in many corners of society throughout history, men have taken this and not taken it as a consequence of the curse of the fall, but taken it as God's will and plan for humanity, that men would rule and dominate women. And so they've made that God's will. And they've read this completely out of context and not taken it as a consequence of sinfulness, a consequence of sinful humanity. It is not God's plan and will for men to rise up and to domineer and dominate women and to put them in their place and to rule the world. In fact, God's plan from the beginning was for men and women to link arms together in full partnership and rule the earth. That's what Genesis 1, 27 and 28 say. When God determines to make humanity, God says, let us make humankind in our image, male and female. Let us make him. You see, the Hebrew word Adam simply means humankind. And so, but we take it as a, as a proper name for the first man, Adam. But in fact, it can refer to and often does refer to all of humanity. The Bible does have a word for man in Hebrew. It's ish. Men, we are ish. Take that wherever you want to take it, right? In Hebrew, man is ish. Woman is isha. Adam is humankind. And so in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, when God says, let us make Adam in our image, male and female, let us make Adam... He's talking about his humankind. And so the plan was for man and woman to link up arms, to be partners, for them to complement one another, to fill in the gaps for each other, to make up for one another's shortcomings or make up for one another's differences. Because there are differences between men and women. We are not the same. We are different. We're constituted differently. The way we see the world is different. Our bodies are different. Our differences go well beyond plumbing and biology to something far deeper, and yet something we can't necessarily put our finger on. Because if you would ask, like, what are the great qualities of a great man? You would say he should be humble. He should be loving. He should be gracious. He should be kind. He should be strong. He should lead his family well. And then if you ask, what are the great qualities of a great woman? You could say all of the exact same things, and yet the way that those play out will be different because we're made differently. And so that doesn't mean we get pigeonholed into different roles as though women can only do this and men can only do that. But the way that we go about the things that we do and the qualities that make us great human beings will be different because we're made differently. And that difference plays into this curse from the fall where God says, okay, the consequence of your sin will now be that, woman, you will desire your husband. You will want him. You will want him to care for you. You'll want him to love you. You'll want him to support you. You'll want him to link arms with you and be partners with you. But he's going to dominate you. 
So then we fast forward, and we see this curse play out throughout history. We see men abusing and men breaking society. We see men hurting women. We see men doing all of these awful things. We see some women doing some pretty bad stuff too. But biblically, more often than not, it's the men who are really messing things up. And throughout history, we see this, and then comes Jesus. Then enters Christ. And Jesus lives his life, and he teaches us, and he lifts up and, and empowers women. And then he dies, and he rises again, and his church comes along. And in Acts chapters 2 and 3, we see the ideal vision of what the church is supposed to be. This community of people who are reliant on one another, worshiping together, living in a family, sharing all their stuff, where men and women are empowered to follow Jesus and to lead others to the example. We see the reversal of that curse back in Genesis 3. And so in the church of Christ, in the kingdom of God, we're supposed to reclaim the original vision from Genesis 1, where God said, I'm going to make men and women in my image together to partner with one another and to work together toward the plans that I have. And in Acts chapter 2 and 3, we see that come about. And so now within the church, the idea is not that men will dominate, men will rule, men will reign but that men and women together in the original purpose of God link arms because we're no longer under that curse. Jesus has freed us from every curse of the fall. Jesus has freed us from every curse of sin and brought us together. And so now we stand shoulder to shoulder, men and women, arms linked, pursuing the kingdom of God. And you're like, yeah, Brandon, that's great. But what Terry just read doesn't seem like that. So what is going on? So we come to chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. We, we talked about the first eight, seven verses last week. And how prayer is the first calling of the church. Prayer is the first duty of the church and of every Christian. Prayer is the main thing that we do, and we do nothing without it. And so from that, where Paul is giving Timothy this first priority of the church, that Timothy is supposed to teach to all of the church in Ephesus, the city where Timothy is, we move from that to now the behavior of people within the church. So Paul's saying, first of all, I want you to pray. Pray for everybody, because God wants the salvation of everybody. And so I want you to pray for all people, including those rulers and those people in authority that you hate or you don't like or seem opposed to you. I want you to pray for all of them. And now he's moving to the behavior of the people within the church. And he starts with men. Oftentimes we skip over this first verse or this verse 8 because there's so much written to women. And so we kind of jump over this part and we miss where Paul is straight up calling out the men of Ephesus. Here's what he says. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. Okay, that's good instruction, right? Without anger or argument. Now, if he's got to add without anger or argument, what do you think marked out the men in Ephesus? Anger and argument, right? These dudes are mad. They're going to war with each other. They're fighting each other. They're arguing over stuff. They're bringing contention into the church. 
Now, here's the really wild part. In chapter 1, Paul has been talking about false teachers that have infiltrated the church. False teachers that have come along to, to lead people astray and are, who are warping the gospel of Jesus. And Paul says, call them out, stand opposed to them. But now he's saying in verse 8, men of the church, don't bring your anger and argument into the church. Paul's implying there's a way to stand on truth and for truth that isn't contentious or argumentative or bullheaded or angry. There's a way to stand for the truth and to stand on the truth that isn't alienating and pushing aside and aggressive. There's a way to be truthful and honest and real without being mad. And so Paul's warning, like men, when you come to pray, I want you to pray all the time, with clean hands, without argument or anger. You see, for these men in Ephesus, having clean hands meant laying aside their anger and their contention, taking up humility and approaching one another with a humble attitude. Because to raise clean hands means that I'm holy. It means I'm washed clean. It means my sin's been washed away. Back in this day, if you were a faithful Jew, you never did anything without washing your hands. You never did anything without washing your hands. You had to be clean, and to be clean meant my hands were washed. Sometimes this was ceremonial, but most of the time it was practical. Your hands got dirty all the time. And so you washed your hands. You didn't come to a meal without washing your hands. You didn't interact with another Jewish man or in, in a council meeting without washing your hands. You didn't go to worship without washing your hands. You certainly didn't go into the temple without having clean hands. Because when I raise my hands to God, I want them to be clean. And this was a symbol of me being washed clean. This was a symbol of the, my clear conscience my clear soul before God. And so I can lift my hands without any self-consciousness, without any concern or worry. I can lift my hands to God because I know they're clean and so is my heart. And so for these men in Ephesus, having a clean heart and having clean hands meant laying aside anger and argument, laying aside contention, not allowing those things to take a foothold in my life but approaching the issues of my day and the issues of my life humbly, with a humble heart, submitting myself to God and to one another. And so Paul makes this first instruction to the men of the church. Don't let your anger and your argument break your relationships. Don't let them dirty your hands before God. Don't let them soil your heart. Lay aside your anger and your argument, men. And here's a good generalization, because I know a lot of men that carry a lot of anger in their hearts. I am one of them. I carry a lot of bitterness sometimes. And I carry a lot of anger. And the scenes that play through my mind more often than not are of my own self-righteousness rising up to put people in their place and to let them know just how wrong they are. And that's where my heart defaults to. And so for my hands to be clean, I must lay that aside and repent and recognize that all my anger and my argumentation and my contentiousness comes out of a place of self-righteousness and assuming that I am better than. I cannot do that and have clean hands before my God. And so I lay it aside. And then we come to Paul's instructions to women. 
He's saying, Timothy, instruct the women of the church to be this way. Now remember, remember the context of this letter. Paul's writing this letter to Timothy to combat false teaching in the church. There are false teachers who have entered the church. They were leading people astray, causing them to divide over things that are not essential, causing them to fight and argue, and causing them to act in ways unbecoming of the follower of Jesus. And so that's the context we have to read this in. And that's where Paul then begins to instruct the women. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency and good sense. Not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. So what Paul is saying here is, women, don't try to draw attention to yourself. It's not about you. The same could be said to many men in our day and age, right? But in this time and place, that wasn't so much the case. It was normal for women in Ephesus to plait their hair and to braid it up in elaborate styles. And then if you really wanted to go out and be seen, you would do it up and you'd put ribbons in and gold ribbons and you'd wear all your jewelry and you'd really try to dress to the nines and look your best all the time so that the attention was on you to draw attention to yourself. And so that's what Paul's warning against. He's warning against self-centeredness. He's warning against trying to make myself the center of attention. That's what this is about. It's not about looking nice. It's not about being respectable. In fact, in society, if you were to walk around dressed this way all the time, people would, think, would not think very well of you at all. They would think you were uppity. They would think you thought you were better than everybody else. If you were to dress this way, in general Roman society, it wouldn't have been looked upon well. So when women are then coming into the church dressed in this way, it's bringing ill repute into the church. People are looking at the church and thinking, oh man, those Christians, they're just so uppity. They think so much of themselves. They, they talk about this Jesus guy, but they're really about them. They're not about him. And so it's, it's bringing a bad look on the church itself to have people within the church who are about drawing attention to themselves. And so Paul's saying, instead, don't make it about you. Dress modestly. Not in a way that provokes other people or tries to draw the attention to yourself. And this was mainly about drawing the attention of other women. It wasn't about trying to draw the attention of men and getting the men to admire them and desire them. This wasn't about sexual desire. This was about envy. And about trying to get other women to be envious of them. Not about men. This wasn't Paul saying, women, you are responsible for the sex drives of the men in your life. This was not Paul saying, women, don't tempt the men. This was saying, don't dress in a way to make the other people envious of you and to start gossip and drama. Just keep the drama down, okay? Be modest so that you can point to Jesus, not to you. And so that's what this first part of is about. Modesty culture in general, modesty talk, gets a bad rap, and I understand why, because women have been beat over the head with you got to dress this way, and you got to act this way, and you got to be demure, and you got to be back in the, in the back, and you can't be seen and up front, and you can't lead, and all of this stuff gets put together in the modesty talk. But really, Paul's just saying, look, conduct yourself with humility in a way that draws attention to Jesus and not to you. 
The same is true for the men. Lay aside your anger and arguments so that you're drawing attention to Jesus and not your own self-righteousness. Women, dress in a way that draws attention to Jesus and not to you. That's it. Then we come to the really hard part. Okay, now you've been waiting to get here. Now we come. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so this is where we are now. Now, in this time and place, there's a lot of research done on this. In this time and place, in Ephesus, there was a cultural moment happening, a kind of feminist cultural moment, where you had the rise of what was called the new woman. And so Roman women at the time, both Gentile and Jewish, um, were becoming more self-expressive. They were becoming more liberated. And some of this was really looked down upon in society in general because it was a male-dominated world, a male-dominated society. So when women start dressing up more regularly and start asserting themselves and running their own businesses and doing the things that traditionally were the realm of men but doing so in a very female-empowered kind of way, society in general didn't look too highly upon that. But it was happening. It was a feminist movement that was happening right at the time. Now, you couple that with the fact that in the church, women were freer than in any other segment of society in general. I know that's hard to believe given the language that Paul's just used and and given the way that we perceive of the history of the church. But when women came into the church, they experienced a level of freedom in worship that they were not allowed in almost any other setting. In the synagogue, women didn't get to read Torah. They, they, They sat at the back if they were in the same room as men at all. They were separated from the men and they weren't in the same way participating in what was happening within the synagogue. In the temple, they had a separate court where they weren't allowed to go into where the men could go. There was the court of the women outside of the court where the men could step into. And so within traditional Judaism, there was a hierarchy. Men are allowed to get closer to God than women. That's what the architecture of the temple said. It wasn't necessarily a cultural thing or something the rabbi might tell you. Some of them would. There was a popular prayer at the time that a Pharisee might pray that said, thank God I'm not uh, this, that, or this, or a woman. And so there was this hierarchy of gender within the traditional Jewish system. So when a Jewish woman steps into a Christian church setting and the men and women are gathered together, integrated with one another, and they see women praying in a Christian worship setting, it's weird, and they like it. But culturally then, you couple that, that freedom that women had within the church that they didn't experience in much of the rest of their world, you couple that with this feminist movement that's happening, the new Roman woman that's happening in Ephesus, and you get some women who are going a little far. These aren't just the, like, I'm living into my freedom as a woman, as a person created in the image of God, honored for who I am. This is the kind of, like, men are terrible feminists. The kind of, like, men have broken the world, so why do we really need them? Let's just keep them in a separate room so we can breed when we need to, kind of went feminist, right? Like, the hardcore, let's just do away with men in general. 
Okay, not quite, right? That's not quite what's happening here. But you do have women that are coming in, experiencing this new freedom, and experiencing this cultural moment, and they become very disruptive to the church. And the problem is, they've not been educated. Because in the time and place, women were generally less educated than men, if educated at all. And they may not be educated in the scriptures. And so they come into the church, and they want to take positions of authority. They want to take leadership. They want to take teaching. But they've not been educated, as the men in the congregation have. And so they don't have the learning, but they're living all into their full freedom now, and they're becoming disruptive, and they're teaching wrong things. And they're being led astray by the false teachers who have come into the church. And all of this comes about, all of this kind of circles around and creates this, this really tough environment where you've got to let them know you, you, you can't do that. You don't know what you need to know yet to be able to teach. You're, you're grasping too much authority too early. And so when Paul says, I do not allow a woman to have authority over man, a better translation of that is, I am not allowing the women to have authority over the men. Meaning, in this time and place, in this context, because these women have been led astray, they've been misled by the false teachers, or they're not mature enough yet to be able to do the things they want to do, to teach in the way they want to teach. And so they need to learn. They need to sit back. Their day will come, but they need to sit back and learn quietly now because the loudness is disrupting the church and it's leading people astray. They're not trained. They're not taught. And in a time and place where education is not equal between the sexes, Men take the lead until the women have been taught. And so we bring this forward to our day where our education is equal, ideally, where ideally we have equal access to education completely. We have equal access to seminaries. We have equal access to the Holy Spirit. We have equal access to all of the learning that the church has done. And our time and place is radically different. Women, you have been taught. You've been trained. You have the Holy Spirit of God who has equipped you and given you gifts. And if any man tells you not to use the gift the Holy Spirit has given you, walk away from him. If God has equipped you to lead his church and to teach in his church and you are mature and you have learned, then you better exercise your gifts. And don't allow a man to tell you you can't. And so here in Ephesus, where there was this disruption and there was this trouble, Paul makes this analogy back to, or this, this comparison back to creation. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. So what he's saying here is like, in your context, here in Ephesus, the men haven't been deceived in the same way. And so you have to rout out these false teachers and train the women. Get rid of the false teachers who have deceived them and train them up. Teach them. Until then, don't assume you're in a position to teach. Learn. Grow. Now, the problem here is the, is the starkness of this language. And some people will say, because Paul appeals back to Adam and Eve in this place, it's a 
It's, this is a, an instruction for all the church in all time. There's a big problem with that because back in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul does the exact same thing. He makes the exact same argument. He says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And in that context, he's saying, women, you need to cover your heads in worship because Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, if we assume that him talking about Adam and Eve makes this a command for all places at all times, then women, you need to cover your heads too because he says the same thing somewhere else. But we don't do that. We say that head covering thing was a cultural issue. It was an issue in the time and place. It had to do with society and being perceived as respectable within society. And so you can't say here, Adam appeal, uh, Paul appeals to Adam and Eve, therefore it's a universal command, and then go back to 1 Corinthians and say, well, there he appeals to Adam and Eve, but it's not universal because it was cultural, and now women, you don't have to cover your heads. It's one or the other. Okay, if you're going to say this is, this is a command that women should never teach in any church ever, you have to also say women have to cover their heads in worship always. It's one or the other. It's, it's simple logic. Secondly, throughout the letters of Paul, Paul commends multiple women as co-laborers in the gospel. Specifically in Romans 16. He names no less than eight women in Romans 16. One of whom was among the apostles, meaning she might have been considered an apostle herself, and one of whom, along with her husband Aquila, was teaching one of the apostles of the church about the Holy Spirit. Back in Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila are teaching this guy named Apollos. They pull him aside, and they're like, hey, yo, Apollos, you're talking, but you don't really know the Holy Spirit well yet. Let me tell you about the nature of the Holy Spirit. And it's clear that Priscilla and Aquila both are teaching Apollos, the one of the leaders of the church. Secondly, when in the Bible you see an order of names, you assume the person named first is of more importance. Priscilla always comes before her husband. Priscilla and Aquila. And so we can read this and we can say, you know what, Paul is saying, women, you just can't teach. You've got to sit back. You've got to learn. You've got to be quiet in church. You can't usurp the role of a man and start teaching and leading. But we would have to throw out a whole lot of our New Testament or we would have to reinterpret a whole lot of our New Testament in order to get there. Because multiple times Paul raises up women. In the Old Testament, you have no less than five prophetesses. Five women who speak the very words of God on behalf of God. And there is no role in the Old Testament that is more important than the role of prophet. You've got prophets, priests, and kings. Those are the people who rule the nation. The prophets, because they speak the literal words of God to the people and to the king, the king because they rule, and the priests because they stand between the people and God. And no less than five times in the Old Testament you have women who have the honor of being prophetesses of God, speaking the very words of God. And if a woman can be considered worthy to receive the direct words of God and speak them to the people of God, why can she not? preach the gospel of Jesus today. One of those prophecies was a woman named Deborah. Deborah served as a judge of Israel. That was the leader of the nation. Back before there were kings of Israel, God raised up judges for certain times and places. They, this, the nation would hit some kind of snag, some kind of big issue, and God would raise up a judge to lead the nation through that issue. And one of those people he raises up is Deborah, a prophetess. This woman warrior to lead the nation of Israel through this season. Throughout the Bible, we see this trajectory 
toward the empowerment and liberation of women to lead within God's people. It's a trajectory through the whole of Scripture. And so here in 1 Timothy, what Paul is saying is, look, everything's coming together to cause a kind of a storm where the women of your church have been deceived and they're not highly educated. They need to learn. They need to grow. And you need to get rid of the false teachers. And then you're ready. And this is a word to all of us. These words to men and women in 1 Timothy are words to every single one of us. Because again, as generalizations are always false in some way, and there are exceptions to everyone, there are women in this room who struggle with anger and argumentation. They, they struggle with being argumentative and contentious. There are men in this room and men within the sound of my voice who like to draw attention to themselves. Make it more about them than about Jesus. There are men in this room who are not educated, who haven't grown into the image of Jesus, who haven't matured in Christ and are not yet ready to teach and to lead. At the end of the day, these verses in 1 Timothy are about rightly setting our heart with humility on Christ. Rightly assessing ourselves and our own sin, knowing what needs to be repented of and cleansed of so we can come before God with clean hands and clean hearts and lay our whole selves before him and in humility admit, Lord, I'm not ready to lead your church yet. I'm not ready to teach your word yet. Lord, I've got problem with anger. I've got a problem with being argumentative. I've got issues that need to be dealt with before I am in a position to lead your church. <clears throat> that's what these verses are about. They're about rightly assessing ourselves because that, at the end of the day, is what humility is. Humility is not a breaking down of myself and a tearing down of myself and denying the worth and value that I have as one created in the image of God. Humility is about a true and right assessment of who I am in comparison to the God who made me. Humility is knowing how God has made me, who God has made me, and walking in that and giving all deference to Jesus, pointing to him in everything. And men and women, we can lock arms and we can walk that road together every single step. Shoulder to shoulder, equal in dignity and value and worth equal in gifting and empowerment by God's Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, sisters and brothers, walking the road of the kingdom of God. And so today, the challenge for us is twofold. One, to take a right and true assessment of ourselves in light of who God is, in light of Jesus. As we confess our sin at the beginning of the service or earlier in the service, looking into ourselves and saying, Lord, what are those things that I'm holding on to? Where's my anger? Where's my argumentativeness? I don't even know how to make that a verb or whatever it is. I don't, whatever. You know, like, what, 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 what is it within me that I need to lay aside so that my hands can be clean? And Lord, how am I falling short of you? How can I learn? Teach me, Lord, so that I can grow and mature so that I can be qualified to be a teacher of your church. God, how am I disrupting worship? And how is my worship being disrupted? 
How can I focus in on you? To take this right assessment of ourselves and in humility confess where we fall short so that we can be brought up. And secondly, then, to pursue the knowledge of Christ. Pursue the qualification. Pursue the the maturity that Jesus has for you. Pursue the Holy Spirit and ask God to make you pure and holy before him and to grow you up, to mature in the truth of Jesus Christ. To pursue, to mature in the truth of the good news, the gospel of Christ Jesus. In humility, repent. And in humility, ask to be made whole. To be made mature in Jesus Christ. Men and women, we can do this together as we walk this road. Let's pray. God, thank you for calling us your own. Thank you for reversing the curse that through the cross and the resurrection and the continuing reign of Jesus Christ, you have reversed all of those consequences of our sin. And that even though, Lord, we don't live into our holiness, we don't, we don't always live into all of the righteousness that you have said is ours through Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that as a community we are drawing nearer and nearer and nearer to that goal, to that end of Christ-likeness individually and as a body. Thank you for breaking down the walls that stand between us between sexes, between races, between socioeconomic statuses, Lord, between whatever stands between us culturally. Thank you for tearing them down in Jesus Christ so we can be one people committed to the kingdom of God. Thank you for calling us your own. God, I pray today that you would give us clear eyes. Holy Spirit, give us clear insight into the areas of our lives where we are falling short of who Jesus is so that our hands and our hearts can be made clean before you and we can come to you with a clear conscience. And Holy Spirit, would you continue to open our minds, open our hearts to learn from you, to learn more the character of Christ, to become those people who are learned and mature and prepared to lead your church. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.